0: Okay, um, so just as a reminder, since it's been uh, two weeks now, since we've bat- last been here, we are going through the Old Testament. We're really trying to make it through over the course of this year, trying to make it through. Um, a lot of the big themes in the Old Testament tackle sort of the big picture and also dive into some of the minute details as well. So we're, we're, we've spent a lot of time over the last uh, six weeks Looking at Abraham specifically, and the main reason being because there's so many things that happen in the story of Abraham that are of tremendous importance for the rest of Scripture, that sort of set the tone for the rest of Scripture. So we spent a lot of time with the story of Abraham, and last time we were here, we ended with the binding of Isaac. And we kind of wrapped up the Abraham story for the most part. You'll remember that God made this tremendous promise to Abraham that he's going to make him the father of a great nation. But there was a big problem outstanding in the text in chapter 12, and really 15 and 17 as well, that he remained childless. He didn't have a child. And so for him to be the father of a great nation, how could that possibly be the case if he doesn't even have a kid yet? And so there just continued to be this sort of promise out on the horizon. I'm going to give you, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And so we saw that all of the promises that God gave to him, not only being the father of a great nation but also giving him the land and and all, all of these other things remain uh, to be seen we they were also immediately put to the test uh, he didn't have the land he didn't have a child and immediately Abraham's faith in those promises are put to the test the land goes under uh, a drought a famine and so he has to leave the land and go into Egypt or uh, he continues to remain childless and so we saw that he, Goes after other heirs. He tries to really adopt Eliezer of Damascus as part of his own household, his servant, and that. And God says, No, 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 no. That's not going to be. It. He's going to be an heir of your own loins. And so then, what does he try to do? Well, I'll make an heir of my own loins. And so he goes in, uh, in into his ser- into his wife's servant Hagar and produces Ishmael. And God says, No, again, it's going to be a child of you and Sarah. This is going to be your child. And and they of course die. Laughing laughing each one of them at the prospect of them having a child. And so God eventually delivers on his promise. And at the end of the story of Abraham, we see this one last great test for Abraham. He's given the child, Isaac, and the child grows up to be 13 years old or so, and he says, um, go and kill him. And so there's this last test that just seems absurd in the text of how on earth could one possibly do this? And it seems like the answer that's given to us is the one that can do this is the one that's been tested for the last 20-something years over this promise. And finally, Abraham puts all of his trust in the Lord's promise and knows somehow that the Lord's going to work this out. He says as much to the men that go with him to Mount Moriah. The Lord is going to do, he's going to do something. We're going to return, is what he tells the men. And so he takes Isaac up there. And of course, the Lord does stop him and provide. And we see even implicit in the, or explicitly in there in the text, where he tells him, take your son, your only son, the one you love, and sacrifice him. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, and sacrifice him. And then once he does, and the Lord stops him, he says, You have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Not the one you love, because then it's proven in the text that Abraham has has really truly placed the Lord and his promises ahead of the things that he has, and entrusts himself to the promises of God. It's a crazy story, obviously, but it, it builds so much. A foundation for the rest of the Old Testament. Now, the vast majority of what we're going to spend the time doing um, here on out is looking at some of these major characters and these major touchstones throughout the Old Testament. But really, um, we want to get to the the time of the. Uh, the kings as First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, establish the prophets and the, kind of the timeline of the Old Testament, establish some of the geography of the Old Testament, and really prepare um, for those that are going, especially uh, to, to go to Israel to kind of be, look at the land there and, and, and really kind of immerse yourself in, in the culture and understand um, better what's going on, remove some of that fear of the Old Testament. But in the meantime, what we're going to do tonight is really get through the book of Genesis so that the next time we start with Moses and the children of Israel coming out of of Egypt and we'll spend some time with uh, Moses and the Exodus. Um, So for tonight, we have to kind of get through Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons and really touch on some of the big events that are happening here. That will help us understand things later on as well. Um, So... Isaac, it's unfortunate because, see, Isaac, he doesn't get much of a mention in the text. It's like two chapters are really devoted to Isaac, and it's really sad because I think it's sad. I've always felt really bad for Isaac because here you get, you get from chapter 12, you get Abraham, this big buildup to this promised child coming, you know, and it's, it's just this massive buildup, and you're just waiting on finally Isaac to get here, and finally Isaac gets here, and God's like, now go kill him. And then after he after he stops him, then then it's like for Isaac. Isaac finally gets his day in the sun. And let's talk about Jacob and your kids. You know, uh, it's like not much about. And so a lot of people have surmised that because he gets such little mention, it's probably because not not because of his lack of of, um, of interest or anything like that, but actually because he was quite faithful to the Lord, and there was no hair-raising stories to really tell about Isaac, right? As there, as there is with his father and his kids, okay? Um, so, uh, within three years of Sarah's death, um, we have uh, the, uh, her burial, and then a grave site is purchased by Abraham um, from uh, Ephron the Hittite. Now, why is this in the text? Ephron the Hittite? Why do I care? that he purchased a grave at Machpelah from Ephron the Hittite. Why does that even matter? What's the promise that the Lord's given to to Abraham? He's going to give him the land. And as you've seen him move around the land, things just kind of go his way. He runs into people and he gets out of the predicament. He goes, Lot is captured and he goes and he gets Lot back. It seems like the whole land is before him. And so as we, move, as we see Abraham move around the text and buy up property, that ends up being kind of significant because the author of Genesis is making sure that we understand he's buying up property and this is ours. Understand that our father owned this land. You need to understand that, right? So there's these subtle cues in the text as Abraham buys up properties, he moves around. That this land was not only promised him, but Abraham owns it. And so then Abraham undertook steps um, to obtain a wife for Isaac. And so he was, uh, Isaac was close to forty by the time he actually gets a wife. And so how does he get a wife? Well. Abraham sends his servant um, who journeys to the city of Nahor, Nahor being his brother. So he journeys to the city. Now, why, why would you go to your brother to find a wife for your child? So he can marry his cousin. So marry his cousin. <laughs> That's how Arkansas got it. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> No, so so he can marry so he can marry his cousin. Now, why would that be important? Gods, what? Gods. Say it again. They're gods. No what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, we don't want to worship their gods, do we? Okay. Now it seems though that Abraham's sort of the patriarch yeah. of this whole thing. Probably odds are his family's not, as we'll see with Rachel. Probably his family's not worshiping the Lord yet, right? Maybe. Why would you go to your your cousins? Just stay in the same bloodline? Yeah, it, cl- it, seems, it seems pretty clear that God is creating a people for Himself, and the patriarchs, very early on, are very concerned with staying within the family. Keeping the bloodline relatively close, let's say, <laughs> which we don't think of as a great thing nowadays, but back then, probably so. And the gods probably do play a part of it, not just because I want you to worship my gods, which may be a part of it, but it's also you bring with you a whole slew of other gods, and there's far worse gods out there than the ones in my own family, you know? Uh, so so uh, as we'll see in, in a little bit, or, or we'll kind of touch on in a little bit, and so um His servant goes and goes up to find a wife for Isaac, has great fortune, and stumbles upon uh, Rebekah, and so he is brought into the family. He meets the family. Laban, the brother of Rebekah, says, well, hey, okay, I think this works out really well. Laban finally agrees after a couple of things are met, and he gives Rebekah to his servant, and the servant journeys all the way back to Isaac's home in the land of Canaan in the Negev. Now, you remember where the Negev is? The Negev is down in the southern portion of the land. So you have the land of Canaan, and then between the land of Canaan and, um, and Egypt is the Sinai Peninsula, and right there in the Sinai Peninsula, just north of the Sinai Peninsula, is the area of the Negev. And so they, they come back there and they settle in. And so by this time, Abraham... Is married is remarried. Bible trivia. Without looking at your sheet, who's he remarried to? You remember? What's her name? Lisa I know, but don't look. <laughs> it's Bible trivia. Do you know? I've never heard of it. you looked. You cheated. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's one of those things to to impress your friends. You know, you you sure. Sure. No, uh, I don't think so. Where am I? Am I am I up here yet? Okay, let's see. Okay, uh, come on. I point to this screen like it's there. Um, okay, so he's married to his uh, his his new wife, Keturah, and Abraham. Though he's very old, has a slew of kids with Keturah. Some of them uh, are are name, or they're named in Genesis. Uh, among those is Midian. You've heard of Midian. Midian becomes—you just put the it at the end. The Midianites, all right, uh, come from Abraham. So Abraham, what, what, what's being what's being established right here? What 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 is the biblical author really trying to communicate to us? What do you think? By showing Abraham, he's got he's even got more kids. With a new wife, what's that? Yeah, uh, through you, all the people of the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. We know that that ends up being Jesus Christ in the end. But He says, "I'm going to make you the father of many nations of a multitude of nations." Yeah. Yes. Yes. So there, kings are going to come from him. There's, I mean, not only is it the tribe of Israel, but it is. He's spreading out across the entire world. There's plenty of ites that come from, where they have Abraham as their father. And so the biblical author is really just trying to say to us or trying to clue us in to just how many things or how many people Abraham is the father of, right? And so here, here among those is, of course, the Midianites. Now... Um, I don't know why I have that slide on there again. That's not what I meant to do. I'm sorry. All my slides are out of order. Give me a second. Okay. Um, Now, we're told in the the book of Genesis that the offspring of Ishmael uh, settled in the desert, which is just to the east and the south of Edom. Edom, remember, is just to the south of the Dead Sea, just to the south and the east of the Dead Sea. And so the tribes of Ishmael settle in uh, the desert, just to the east and just to the south of Edom. Now, I looked this up because the Bible doesn't clue us in on it, so I had to find somewhere else because somebody asked this question uh, last time. We have um, several tribes that are several sons that are born to Ishmael. In fact, 12 sons are born to Ishmael. Just like 12 sons are born to Jacob. And the second son of Ishmael is listed in the Bible as Kedar. K-E-D-A-R. The significance of Kedar, anybody know? Tradition has it. Is the father of... uh, Now you're cheating again. Uh, Kedar is traditionally referred to as the father of Muhammad. So, apparently, as far as the, the, uh, the nation of Islam, uh, they see their father, their great forefather, I guess you would say, as Ishmael, and Keter being the uh, father, apparently, that Muhammad is from. Abraham, yeah. They do recognize Abraham. That's why they're called the Abrahamic religions, right? Uh, Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity. Um, okay, now, the interesting thing about the Ishmaelites... And the Midianites is that they appear in some scriptural text to be almost interchangeable groups of people. Now, they are different people, we know, but at some point they become sort of one in the same. Let's take a look at a couple of these texts. Um, you have your, your verse packet there in the back. Genesis thirty-seven twenty-five and then 27 to 8 and 36. Uh, somebody read that out loud for us. Uh, uh, 37, 25 to 28, yeah. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then 27 to 28. You see how the the term Midianite and Ishmaelite are are flip-flopped back and forth within that within that same passage. It seems like um, they, they so they uh, kind of adopt the same name, and it's obvious that at some point they combine. Though we're not really told how or by whom, but apparently they become sort of interchangeable people along the way. Now. Does that all make sense for, that's really Isaac and what happens to Ishmael and that kind of thing sort of wraps up that little piece of the story. Go ahead, Vicki. No, I was just oh. it Yeah. Now, the, the transition piece, which becomes the really important part that I want to get to tonight, is centered around the birthright and the blessing. Now this, the birthright and blessing uh, become this monumental piece that helps us to understand a lot of what happens well one in the rest of Genesis but then really even in the rest of the Bible the concept of birthright becomes really really an important part of the story now you obviously probably most of you will remember the story of Jacob and Esau and why and that the birthright plays a really important part in that but it's actually a, a centerpiece really throughout a lot of what happens in um, the biblical text and especially in the New Testament. It becomes of central importance in the New Testament, ironically, when we get to the story of Jesus. Right? Birthright becomes a, a, of paramount importance. Um, so as far as understanding this birthright, basically what it is is that the firstborn in the family traditionally holds a position of honor. So he's got this privilege status, and he also has a right of succession, meaning if your father is the king, then the king dies. The firstborn, the owner of the birthright, usually would be the one that would get the right to the throne. And so the birthright basically means that this person has a position of honor has a has a privileged status within the family and has a right of succession now for a while up until the levites come along and actually establish the priesthood that person who owns the birthright is kind of the priest of the family is responsible for shepherding their spiritual well-being as well being the 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 spiritual leader as it were of the family as well And so, and then once the Levites come along and everything like that, there's an established priesthood in Israel. That sort of uh, that idea sort of dissolves. And by the time we get to Jesus, um, some of this becomes a little bit different. We see, especially in the story of the um, the prodigal son, kind of sheds sort of a different light on this. But we also know that the birthright um, for the oldest son, he receives a double portion of the father's. Wealth and all of his possessions and things like this. And so basically what would happen if a father had nine sons, he's going to divide his possessions up nine ways. The oldest or the person that owns the birthright gets the first two. Then the rest of the sons have to divide up the seven portions that are left up amongst eight children. Does that make sense? Okay. So now as we understand it or at least we think we understand it if there are two sons it's divided in half the oldest gets two none left for the rest that's the way I I think the Bible is shaping out a lot of scholars point that way as well that um, that if there's two children then the oldest gets all of it and he's responsible for either doling out some to the the kids or not. Now the thing that changes with Jesus is we see that there's two sons in the parable. Now it's a parable, so we don't know that it's a uh, an actual story, but um, in the parable it seems that there are two sons and that there's an inheritance for both, right? And the, the youngest son takes his inheritance and, and goes off. So it's probable that something along the lines had changed a little bit, culturally speaking, by the time it gets to The time of Jesus, or perhaps we don't understand it right, and that may be true too. Um, (laughs) Now, the reason that this is of paramount importance when we get to Jesus is: what is Jesus, or better yet, who is Jesus? The only Son, son. which means what? He He gets it all. So, if Jesus is God's only Son, then he has exclusive rights to the inheritance. Now. In order to be included in God's family, one has to be holy, as God is holy, right? So Jesus comes down and what does he do? Is he holy? Well, yes, he lives a perfect life. And so, does he gain the inheritance? Yes, he's not kicked out of the family of God, he gains the inheritance. But instead of taking it all to himself, what does he do? He dies. He dies. Now, his death, obviously what happens to his inheritance, well, it's got to go somewhere, right? But in his death, he also died for a people. And so he includes them into his family. In fact, we become his body. We become a part of him. So, by becoming a part of him, we also gain his inheritance. Right? Inheritance and birthright becomes a tremendous, uh, tremendously important part of the biblical narrative, especially when we get to Jesus, because uh, I don't know that we can really understand what's happening with Jesus unless we understand that. The, the other part that's really important, especially as your Jehovah's Witness friends come and knock on your door, is a lot of them will tell you, Uh, that Jesus being the firstborn among many brothers, or even your Mormon friends will tell you this too, him being the firstborn means what? What do they say? What's that? We're brothers. brothers. He was made like we are. He was, um, I think even the Mormon text says, as he was, so you are. No, wait, as he is, so you are, as he is. Now is you will be or something like that, basically implying that he was created just like you are. He is, uh, he is, he's just like us. He was procreated by God. That that's what the Bible means when it says firstborn. But that's not true. Any Jew reading that text would say what he's talking about there is being the firstborn, meaning that he has the primacy to all of the father's possessions. That what the father owns. Jesus owns. Not only that, but by being God's son and being here on earth, all of the Jews that were there at the time of Jesus, understanding him to call himself God's son meant that he was making decisions for God. That's what the son does. The firstborn son, in absence of the father, makes the decisions for the estate. He decides how it all goes. In fact, we even see this in a... um, a parable that Jesus tells of the stewards of the vineyard. You remember this? Where the father goes away, and the, they're left in charge of the vineyard, and he sends messengers to go collect rent, and they kill these messengers. And then he says, well, I'll send my son, and he'll, he'll do it. And of course, they'll listen to the son, and they don't, they kill him too. And so that's laying out the same premise that is being talked about by Jesus being the firstborn, by him being God's only son, is that he's making the decisions for the father's estate, and all that the father owns is his. And so at the end of all of Jesus' story, he gains this inheritance. But by him dying, he includes us in it. Look at uh, in your packet there, Romans 4, uh, 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring... That he would be heir to the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 8 29. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Galatians 3:29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Uh, he- Ephesians one eighteen, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Hebrews 11, 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So here's, the, and there's, there's plenty more scriptures that, ta- that deal with this concept of inheritance of things that we're going to gain through Christ and through Christ only but this idea of having the birthright and the, and the blessing is tremendously important in not only the Genesis narrative but also in really the rest of scripture and in the New Testament. Now, here's another thing that we also understand that in the event that a man died without any sons, how would his possessions be divided up? Daughters first, okay? So if in, this happens in, the, in numbers as the, the group of girls come to Moses and the elders and they say, look, uh, our dad died. He has no sons. Why don't we get his possessions? Why aren't, why aren't we there? And so Moses says, well, let me think about it. I'll take it to the Lord. And so he asked the Lord and the Lord says, yeah, they're right. They should, really should get the possessions of their dad since he doesn't have any sons. And this is how you're gonna do it from here on out is you give the possessions to the daughters, and then if they don't have any daughters or sons, then it'll go to the uncle or the brothers, and then if it doesn't have any brothers, then they'll go to the uncles and so on and so forth. And so this is kind of determined here. Now, let's couple this, this idea that uh, possessions could go to the daughter, okay? Let's take that in account with uh, some historical evidence of the tablets of Nuzi, Remember we talked about these a while back, the tablets of Nuzi that were discovered, some 1,700 tablets that are about the size of a credit card, and they were discovered in the area of the Mesopotamian region, so up there up north in Haran, where Jacob and Rachel and uh, Laban and all of them are at the time. So this is kind of the general area where um, these things are discovered. And what we find there is in those tablets it shows that not only can uh, any member of the family gain birthright, but that the birthright could be exchanged. That you could trade your birthright to someone else. And as a symbol of who owns the birthright, the person that has the birthright would take the family's gods. Tiny little statues. Statues. Little carvings that the family worshiped. The owner, the possessor of these gods would be the one that had the rightful claim to the estate. So imagine uh, two sons, they one has the birthright. They they've separated, you know, over many miles. The dad dies, they come back to where the parents are to settle the estate. Who who has the who has the right to this estate? Well, I've got The gods, right? Here they are. This is my token that I... So the Newsy tablets establish a law code that people in the area abided by, right? Okay, now look at Genesis 31. Turn to Genesis 31. We're in the story of Jacob, and he... Remember, he's gone. Esau was really mad at him because Jacob steals Esau's birthright and he, he 's taken it Esau's really mad at him he's also stolen Esau's blessing and he has he's fleed far away from Esau and he's gone to live with his his brother or his uncle Laban, who has some daughters and he's gotten married uh, to Leah and to Rachel and he's got their um, servants as well and they're getting ready to leave and we see at the very beginning of chapter thirty one uh, verse 1, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he gained all his wealth. So they're complaining that like, hey, my inheritance is not nearly as big as it once was, and that's a problem. And so Jacob uh, knows that they're complaining about him, and these are his brother-in-laws, and he obviously uh, doesn't want to really confront them, so he sends his wives out there to, to, to do the, hey, they're your brothers, go out there and talk to them, and so uh, Leah and Rachel go out there and do some of the bargaining, and you know, the negotiating between them, and, and look, they're, they're very concerned as well, they're like, look, all of the things that are are where my dads are going to, uh, kid, they're not ours, they're, they're going to kids, we don't, we don't get any of these things, right, and how many kids do they have by this point, have 11 sons okay now Jacob's favorite wife is is who is Rachel how many does she have she has one at this point she'll have a second one later on but she has she has one at this point she has Joseph and he's the youngest he's the runt of the family okay at this point and so uh they're concerned right so they're they're fleeing Laban's gone out to work and Jacob's big plan is to while he's gone get everybody together and let's just leave let's just head for the hills okay because they're all mad at me so I'm gonna I'm gonna take off and so then we see in 31:19 something very interesting happened Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel what does she do Stole his gods. This is weird. Why does she do this? We're not really told in the text why explicitly she does it. We're left to assume either she is a polytheist, so she worships a a lot of different gods. And to have her creature comforts with her on the road, she took the household gods with her. But if you think about it, this is sort of a selfish thing to do. She's got her whole family, her brothers and people like that, her dad and her presumably her mom back at home. Taking the household gods seems like such a weird thing. Until you consider maybe, in light of the Newsy tablets that we found, that possibly what she's doing is securing the possessions for the family by taking possession of her father's gods. So in the event that her father dies, who has the right to these? Now, think about birthright and blessing. Who gets Jacob's possessions? Reuben. He's the oldest. Is that Rachel's kid? Nope. What's Joseph going to get? One eleventh at this point of everything that that Jacob has. I think, call me crazy, but I think Rachel is a little bit concerned that her baby is not gonna have enough, is not gonna be provided for. Now that's ironic in the story because God has told Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed. I'm gonna bless those who bless you. His family is going to be rich beyond all imagination. Presumably, Rachel knows this. Jacob for sure knows it. He struggled to get the birthright and the blessing to begin with. So he knows it for sure. Does she believe that? Maybe. But you know what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when the rubber actually meets the road? It, 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 it's hard not to take matters into your own hands and just seize control. And so it's possible that what's happening here is that Rachel is taking possession of these idols to really claim the family's inheritance so that she can pass these along to her baby, Joseph. The further irony of this is who actually gets the birthright and the blessing? Remember? Joseph. Okay, strange, isn't it? Now, so she takes these idols, and she's got them in her possession. Now, what ends up happening? Do you remember the story? Do you remember how it unfolds? Laban comes looking for him. Oh, Laban oh. comes looking for him. So up here in, so at the very top of this map, you're just going to have to trust me here, at the very top of this map, in where it says Padan Aram, just north of the letters Padan Aram is Haran, which is where Jacob and Laban and all of them are at. I had to kind of zoom out so that you could see where the land of Canaan is. They're a long ways up there. So they're way, 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 way up there. And so Jacob and all of his uh, folks head for the hills. They, they come straight down that orange line all the way down to the east of the Jordan River where they finally will meet Esau. But up here at Ramoth Gilead, let me get my pointer on the screen, You see Gilead right there? Down here in the south? There's there's the Sea of Galilee. There's the Dead Sea is down here at the very bottom. And then Gilead is in between them. Okay? He ends up there meeting Laban. Laban comes looking for him. So Laban is hot. All right? (laughs) He is hot to trot because somebody has taken his gods. And the only ones that's left, his family, is Jacob and his crooks his clan of crooks okay and so he goes looking for them, and he comes down there and he and he and he meets them and I believe it's in verse 32 if I'm not mistaken I've written that down and so I hope that's right um yeah um so he comes up to Jacob and he says he says look one of you has my gods and and Jacob's like Jacob doesn't know at this point anybody's got I don't think he ever knows who's got his gods he's like look he doesn't doesn't have nobody has your gods And he says, he makes a really stupid comment in verse 32, Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Who has the gods? Who's Jacob's favorite wife? Who's the one of his wives that's going to die pretty soon in the story? Rachel. Rachel. it's almost as if God honors the the promise okay so it's it's unclear in the text I I get it there's not it's not spelled out this is what this means her taking the gods but I think there are a lot of things that are stated in the text that are cultural assumptions you're supposed to just know that Um, for instance God cutting the or Abraham cutting the animals in half and laying them opposite each other and God passing in between the animals in the night. That's never explained. You're just just left to go, what in the world? Okay, I guess in some dream they got some divided animals. Um, Abraham tells another guy, put put your hand under my thigh. You're supposed to go, oh yeah, I get it. That makes sense, right? Right. so there's some cultural assumptions that are made in the text, and I think this may actually be one of them, that she's trying to provide, and it ends up being her undoing. It ends up being leading to, really, ultimately, her death. Um, questions, comments, thoughts on that? Okay. Um, all right, so even though Jacob, whose name means... He grabs the heel. Some of you probably think his name means deceiver. Yes, you've heard that, that before. His name means a deceiver. His name actually means he grabs the heel. We, we, we use the expression today, you're pulling my leg, as a kind of a joke. He grabs the heel is a Hebrew idiom for you're pulling my leg. You're, you're a trickster. You're a deceiver. So here's Jacob, the he grabs my heel guy. Um, He is the younger of the twins. And yet God tells him, uh, God tells Rebecca, before they're ever born, the older will serve the younger. And so Esau, what happens in the story? Well, pretty soon Esau uh, comes in and, uh, yeah, Esau comes in and trades his, his birthright for a bowl. The text says a bowl of the red stuff. He just sits down and give me some of the red. Give give me the red stuff. He's really hungry and he doesn't even know what to call it. He's just like, give me whatever you've got. Uh, It turns out to be lentil stew that Jacob's making. And uh, Esau says, just give me some of the the red stuff. And he and Jacob says, Well, give me your birthright. Which seems like an unfair trade. Uh, (laughs) But Esau, who is impulsive, it appears in this story. He's really impulsive. To the point that he's probably legitimately hungry. He probably is to the point of starvation even. I don't know. Maybe he's really incredibly famished. But for whatever reason, he decides, okay, yeah, the birthright. I don't need something that's years away from me now uh, when I can have lentil stew. Now, I wouldn't trade just about anything for lentil stew. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't trade a pair of old sneakers for lentil stew. So... um, so, but then what happens in the text, especially when we get to the New Testament text, Esau becomes a parable for all believers that we should endure patiently rather than giving in to our passions. Like Esau, because what happens with Esau? Do you remember he, he gets he gets out he's out of his birthright, and then Jacob deceives him out of his blessing. So he goes into the tent where Isaac is near blind, and he clothes himself with Esau's clothes. He puts on animal skins that Rebekah has made him, and that's important as well. Is yeah, mother's behind it all. Rebecca's favorite is Jacob. That's clearly stated in the text. Rebecca's favorite is Jacob, and. Isaac's favorite is Esau. But only one of the parents, it appears in the text, is told by God himself that the older will serve the younger. And that's Rebekah. So it seems as though she's taking her cues from the Lord, (laughs) and she's truly trying to, it seems like, finagle it. But it ends up being, that's how the Lord's going to do this trick is that uh, Jacob ends up taking it. Well, once Esau has realized that he's out of both things, He's out of the birthright and the blessing, which truly can never be separated. The birthright is the blessing. And Isaac and, and Esau are both under the assumption that it can be separated. And a, apparently the answer is, uh, the Lord says, no, it cannot be separated. Uh, so Esau is trying to get his some sort of blessing. Don't you have any blessing for me? And, and J, uh, Isaac's answer is really, uh, not really. A tiny little one here, you can have crumbs, but that's about it. And so Esau breaks down in tears. And what does the author of Hebrews say about him? Hebrews 12, uh, 12 16 and 17. That no, uh, he's, saying, he's saying avoid uh, sins and things like that. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward... When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The story of Esau is marked by someone who is so compulsive that he gives in to his slightest little whims and goes after them, even if it means giving up what is most cherished. And he says, you too, Christian, don't go after those things that momentarily satisfy giving up that which eternally satisfies even though the birthright that is yours by virtue of your faith in Christ is going to be inherited by faith and there's going to be some delay before you get it. That's exactly it. Yeah, you're you're not placing value on what is is valuable. Um, Okay, so then toward the end of the book of Genesis, um, it seems clear in the actions of Reuben, who does what? What does Reuben do? Hey, what? His fathers. Oh, he well, he does, but then, but there's another thing that he does that he's held accountable for. That is the reason why. Father's concubine. Yeah, he slept with his father's concubine. That that was the big the big one. Um, that was a a big problem. And then Simeon and Levi, what do they do? You remember what they do? Now, what they do seems excusable to us. <laughs> no. Yeah, so the the some folks Shechem uh, rapes their sister, uh, and once they once that happens, um, Simeon and Levi come up with. To be honest, when I read when I read this story, I think, hey, that's a pretty good plan. <laughs> they were pretty shrewd. Uh, so they tell that Shechem wants to marry Din- Dinah. Is it? If I'm remembering right, the name. Um, wants to marry Dinah, and he says, "Look, I'll do anything." After he's already raped her, uh, look, I'll do I'll do anything I want to I want to marry her. He says, "Well, we can't give our sister to an uncircumcised Gentile." He didn't say Gentile, but Gentile. So if you wanna if you want her, then we'll give her to you. But all everybody everybody in the whole town's got to be circumcised. And so they're like, "Okay, fine." So they everybody gets circumcised. And on the third day, they're all laying around and they're in pain. All the males are, and so. Simeon and Levi uh, come into the camp and just kill everybody. <laughs> and it's all a revenge plot um, for what they did to their sister. And when you read that, well, hey, that looks pretty shrewd. And that looks like a pretty good plot there, a little scheme to, to do this. But the problem is when Jacob is handing out the blessings to his family in Genesis 49, he uses that, that instance as a reason why they don't get the birthright or the blessing, why it passes over them. And he uses Reuben's mistake with his concubine as reason why he doesn't get the birthright and the blessing either. So once it passes the oldest, then it really is up to Jacob to, give, to hand out. And so um, Joseph, it seems, was then sent to Egypt. Uh, oh, so I need to point this out. There's something that's happening in the text of Genesis As we get closer to the end of the story, especially as you look at the actions of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, that it seems like what the brothers are doing is they're starting to adopt the practices of the Canaanite culture. They're starting to become Canaanite. Uh, Reuben, Reuben, some of the brothers begin taking on Canaanite wives, Canaanite girlfriends, Canaanite concubines. And it seems as though they're beginning to adopt the lifestyle of the Canaanites. Well, what's God's plan? How does he get them out of this? He sends them to Egypt. So it seems as though what happens to Joseph in the text of Genesis, it seems heinous on the surface. And it is heinous. What they did to their brother is awful and it's sinful. And Joseph is intent on saying they intended it for evil. There was evil in their hearts when they did it. They intended it for evil. But he says God had intentions in this plan as well. And his intentions were pure. His intentions were good. His intention was to get them out of Canaan. Well, one, he gets them out of Canaan in that he... uh, So uh, the answer is their divine providence, if you don't have that. By divine providence, Joseph is sent to Egypt, um, not as an act of punishment, but a blessing of divine providence. Um, He gets them out of Egypt not only to eventually get them out of the land of Canaan, but also to save the lives of his brothers. Now, there's, there's so many things that we could say about the text of Genesis, but one of the things that has to stand out to us is that uh, there's one person that ends up being the one to pull, pull the uh, kid out of the pit, pull Joseph out of the pit, and sell him to the slave traders, and that's Judah. Judah's act of taking Joseph out of the pit and getting him down to Egypt ends up saving the entire nation of Israel. Because if not for Joseph going down to Egypt, storing up grain, saving his family, they're all dead in a famine. So Judah saves the entire nation. So what is he rewarded with in the end, in the blessing? The scepter. The scepter will never pass from Judah. Judah. Now we know that there's a really there's a couple really important figures that come from the line of Judah. One is David, right? He sits on the throne, and there's great David has great promise. David's going to be the king. He's going to maybe this guy, maybe he is the new Adam, maybe he's the one that was promised from Abraham's seed. Nope, he fails. Well, there's another one that comes up from the line of David that also saves an entire world of people, and that's Jesus. There's great foreshadowing in the book of Genesis as it looks toward the future of the biblical narrative. It opens up a lot of pathways that miraculously, as if it were superintended by the Holy Spirit, are all closed by the time we get to the end of Revelation. What's interesting, too, is I think that most of the New, all of the New Testament authors pick up on these things. We read past them a lot of times, and we're like, sure, whatever, I don't know. I didn't get that. They're picking up on all of them. Questions, comments, concerns? We What's that? We and we, too, were snatched from the pit. Yeah, there's there's a ton. We're going to get to Moses and the Exodus. The 10 plagues is what I've got planned for next week. So, um, yeah, (laughs) yeah, the plagues are really interesting. And, you know, I, um, well, I won't say too much, but I I think one of the the funny things about liberal scholarship, because he, I think you were probably referring to a bunch of liberals who would say, well, these plagues are just, you know, they're just figurative or whatever. The one thing they cannot be is figurative. They either are literally, they literally happened, or they didn't happen at all, right? That, or they weren't even, the early Jews didn't even know about them. They never, you know, read them or anything like that. That's the only thing they can't be is figuratively used for our intentions. So um, anyway, that more of that next week. Uh, questions about this? Anything? All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, thank you for the text of, of Genesis and how tremendously important it is for us to understand and wrap our minds around the things that you're doing. What becomes obvious to us is that you have superintended all of this, that um, none of the things that we see on the page of Scripture are by accident, and all of the things that we see, even way more than we can wrap our minds around right now, are so important. And um, just testify once again to your power and your supremacy and your authority and your sovereignty, and and the fact that you have given this word to us that we may read it and we may struggle our whole lives and never exhaust it is amazing. And it's something that only is true of your word. And so we are grateful for it. And I pray that through this study, through all of the things that we talk about, that it just leads us to a deeper appreciation for your word, but also for you and for what you've done for us through Jesus on the cross, that we may gain a deeper appreciation, a deeper love for you and an appreciation for our own salvation. And just knowing truly what it cost you. May it help us to understand our own sin. The fact that we too, like Rachel or like any of these characters that we're reading about, grab on to our own way of doing things. And we want to secure our own blessings and go about it our own way. And um, Lord, we're reminded time and time again in Scripture that's not a good way to do it. And so I pray that it would lead us to not only confess our own sin to you, but to trust in you and to trust in your promises. We know of the one outstanding promise on the horizon of your return, of Christ's return. And we long for that day. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, um, that we may celebrate, um, that we may look forward to that day um, when we are with him for eternity. Pray these things in his name, amen.